over the last 50 years, the sort of labor share of income versus capital share, specifically these sort of economic metrics that have shifted, that the dollars that are going to executives and shareholders versus workers and wages, that's over a trillion dollars a year for 40 straight years. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Logan LaHive an entrepreneur who's founder and head of a company called Frank, where he's building a custom and private digital organizing platform for workers and union organizing. We had a very good conversation about how Logan came to build an enterprise in the labor and technology space and why he feels the world of labor organizing is underserved and merits its own specialized solutions and what he's up to with Frank. Logan's work fits in with the many other political progressive tech entrepreneurs I've talked to who are working to make our country a better place. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Logan LaHive at getfrank.com. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Logan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Logan LaHive. So I am a co-founder at GetFrank.com and at Frank. We build software for labor. Specifically, we build software for organizers uh, to help them improve the process, hopefully, and provide more accessibility and efficiency in organizing. I come from uh, a background of tech. I grew up in the Bay Area outside of San Francisco, and I think was a good student with sporadic attendance. I was looking maybe for things throughout my high school years to maybe peak interest. And, you know, mid 90s or so, just the ability to see the growth of tech uh, around me. I had a, a class, an elective class that had a mock investing portfolio. And that was one of the only things that I think really caught my attention. I was uh, paying attention and following a lot of these tech companies. So, I ended up going to school for entrepreneurship as a degree. I would say, in truth, I think it's a bullshit major. But, you know, 20 plus years ago, there wasn't a lot of people giving advice, blogs and podcasts about how to do so. So I majored in entrepreneurship. My mom was a 35 year plus public school teacher. My dad was in the auto industry, uh, primarily most of his career selling auto parts. And so I didn't know, you know, what it meant to, you know, kind of be in tech or be an entrepreneur. And so I, I majored in entrepreneurship. I started out of school uh, not knowing exactly what I wanted to build. And so I joined startups. I joined a startup in San Francisco called Pay by Touch, putting fingerprint payment systems in grocery stores and drugstores. That lasted a few years and ultimately 
became one of the largest startup failures of all time. And I was able to get out. I was traveling the country, uh, putting the product in stores and ended up finding a startup in Chicago, uh, a city where I had traveled to and wanted to stay and ended up joining a small startup in Chicago called Redbox, which was renting DVDs out of Coke machines. I used to rent from them in uh, Bradford, Vermont. Well, thank you. So, you know, it's at that time, you know, I was a couple years out of school without much experience coming from a failed startup that was putting something in grocery stores and drugstores. And so I applied to a job at Redbox and it was the only job they had available time it was the most junior you know role in the company. But they hired me as a marketing coordinator because I had spent two years putting things in grocery stores. I joined when it was very small uh, and was fortunate to be a part of uh, a lot of growth uh, and seeing a lot of things done right at building a company. After that, I finally thought I was ready to start something. At uh, Redbox, uh, why'd you leave? I mean, you got to the director to be a director of new business, it says on your LinkedIn. What what was that and, and what did you like have any upside from being there early and being around or whatever happened with that company? No, not, not, not a lot of upside. I mean, I, you know, I would say um, upside to cover a couple of weeks, if not months of, you know, living expenses. The company was, there's a lot of formation story there, but it was started out of actually a McDonald's project and then spun out into a private company. And so it had a, you know, a number of sort of ownership entanglements. So the company was ended up being acquired by Coinstar, the coin counting kiosks. Within a year or so of the acquisition, it was you know ninety percent of the of the company's revenue. So, not necessarily you know the the outcome that we all hoped for. But I you know uh, like a lot of people that joined startups, I was there for over four years, uh, and four years being a pretty significant sort of milestone. But if you you mentioned the title that I had, director of new business, you know that was me sort of crafting a path internally as the company got bigger from a startup to becoming a large company to be entrepreneurial. And so I was always the person, you know, anytime there was a new idea, I'd raise my hand and say, I'll work on that or proposing new ideas. And so as the company evolved, I started um, becoming involved in all of the new idea projects, um, rolling out new product lines. And so it gave me a lot of exposure to what I thought was entrepreneurial, which, you know, I, I key distinction between starting something inside of a company versus doing it on your own. It kept me sort of closer to being entrepreneurial. And it also allowed me to become really involved in the Chicago tech community, sponsoring events and mentoring startups, introducing them to people within Redbox. After that uh, sort of four-year mark was up, I knew I was going to leave and, and start something. And I ended up leaving 2011. I started a company called Belly. We built loyalty programs for small businesses. So if you ever went to a cupcake shop or an ice cream shop and they had a, an iPad at the point of sale of the register where you could use one card or app, at all these small businesses, that was us. And the company grew fairly large. Uh, we had, you know, at one point, 10,000 businesses using the loyalty program and about 10 million consumers that ended up using Belly as a loyalty card at some of their favorite places. And I ran that company for a number of years, raised, you know, a lot of venture capital, built a team. And in 2016, through a number of different things, I moved to the, the board and I ended up taking over a job as a managing director at Techstars Chicago, which is an accelerator for tech startups. I spent a couple of years in an advisory role to startups, early stage. Did that for two years. And then um, 2018, I, I put in notice and decided to start 
something new and started this company, Frank, to build software for labor. I'm going to ask you two questions just out of curiosity about Mm -hmm. Belly and Techstars. What was the ultimate disposition of Belly? Is it still around? Did you sell it? What happened there? I moved from CEO to the board um, after, uh, let's just say, a sort of contentious conversation at the board level uh, on a disagreement on the, the strategy and direction moving forward. And so part of it, my last day, I uh, laid myself off and had to execute layoffs for a number of other members of the team. That was the strategy that I didn't agree with, but I committed to doing that myself, including letting myself go. Years later, uh, the company sold, uh, was acquired, uh, sold part, and then sold another part. So it was acquired twice. It was not a significant outcome for the company. So Belly was acquired. And your other question was? So Techstars. I mean, I'm just curious about that accelerator investor sort of enterprise. I've seen a little bit of like 1776 here in DC, where I coached a little bit, but I know Higher Ground Labs has been a uh, an accelerator that you've had uh, you know, on the program. Yeah. I, I'm aware of them too, and a, and a few others in this space, New Media Ventures. But tell me a little about the value you saw in that to the entrepreneurial community where you were. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I'd been trying to be and passionately sort of involved in, in the sort of Chicago tech and entrepreneurial system. Um, I've always had a, you know, sort of deep affinity to, uh, early stage startups and, you know, folks that were trying to build something new. And when I was moving on from, from belly, you know, it wasn't exactly the path forward that I'd wanted. It was contentious. And it just so happened that the board meetings and the, this conversation was happening in early November of 2016, which was unfortunately the week of a presidential election that I would say, um, you know, spun me pretty aggressively as well. And so um, when I moved on from Belly, the thing about being the founder, and I'm sure that you you think about this as well, is being a founder of a company is you don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what you'll do next or what you'll do after. I had now uh, all of a sudden become free and to think about what I was going to do with the rest of my, you know, rest of my life and career. And I knew I wanted to work on something, let's just say more meaningful. I wanted to work on something that I felt deeply passionate about. And I knew that I would have opportunities potentially to do that, but I knew I wasn't ready yet. I'd I'd just come out of running a company for years and it was hard. And so I wasn't ready to jump right back in. And so with Techstars, you know, I think a number of people do those accelerator type roles to become a venture capitalist or an investor. I, I did it because I felt like it was a community that I could serve early stage founders. I could, hopefully be helpful in their journey, give access to more people to start things, hopefully make introductions, connections for them and committed to doing it for two years. And so I did it for two years and moved on. The value of those, I would say, um, I think the my honest assessment is that there's now currently far too many accelerators. I think there's some that are great um, and very good for a specific purpose or outcome. But like most things, uh, when it starts and starts to work, too many people sort of jump in, too many copycats, too much sort of growth and scale. And so, you know, I, I, I think right now that uh, accelerator sort of market for startups is saturated and probably has some resetting to do. But the founders that I talk to, I would tell them very specifically that 
accelerators are not for everyone. They are not the right fit for everyone. And ultimately, I think, you know, if you're going to start something and join one, you have to be looking for a specific outcome. Accelerators are typically good at either making very specific customer introductions or very specific investor introductions, uh, connections to mentors, they say, but I don't think that's worth the equity that they charge. I think as a founder, you probably fundamentally need to, one, believe that you want to raise capital and need help or introductions in order to do so. I think you fundamentally have to believe that doing an accelerator will increase your chance of success, your uh, tier of investor or the potential economics of that round. And if you can believe those things and they improve your chance of success, then there can be a distinct value to doing so. But I, you know, I think that all those things need to be an honest assessment between, you know, the co-founders, what their mission is, you know, what their goals are uh, and what outcomes they seek from joining. And so, you know, pros and cons. I mean, the other thing I've noticed is, I don't know if this is your experience, but a lot of times when you're coaching companies or you're um, in a certain sense teaching, you learn as much or more than the people who are listening to you. Did you find that at all? Just Absolutely. seeing a variety of companies and what they were up to. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been running a company for years and I knew, I knew I was probably going to start another. And so, you know, for me staying close to sort of early stage and entrepreneurs and continuing to learn was important for me. I also think because I felt I maybe knew that or had internalized that a little bit more, one of the things that, you know, I really tried to do uh, in that role was, was help founders or, you know, people earlier in their careers at these companies sort of recognize that the gap between them and this perception of their sort of mentor network or the, the investors or the folks that they're, that they're pitching to is not nearly as large as they may think, and that they'll ultimately very likely be mentors in one to two years after they do the accelerator program, or uh, they'll get a lot, of, a lot of bad advice. And so, you know, one of the things that was important for me was making introductions, connections, learning from the founders and from the folks that I worked with, but also making sure that they deeply understood to trust themselves, uh, you know, as the leaders of the thing that they were working on, that they may very likely know best. And that ultimately, if they are going to be successful in a new venture, the only way to really do so is to do so, to lead it authentically, make the decisions that you think are best, and to just try to have a high batting average on those decisions over a long period of time. That makes sense. I came out of a family that was interested in labor. My dad was like vice president of a teacher's union for a bit. And on both sides, there were labor activists going back. And so I've always had an interest in that place, studied labor history in college, things like that. What, what attracted you to the labor market? I would like to say, you know, I, I sort of grew up in the union hall and, you know, but that's, that's, you know, not my childhood story. I mean, uh, my mom was a first generation immigrant. Uh, she moved to the U.S. from Iran when she was 14, learned English and then became a middle school teacher teaching English and, you know, history and, and others. And um, so she was a proud union member. My dad, like I said, grew up in the auto industry, but he, you know, later in his career was, you know, really selling auto parts. And on my dad's side, I will say um, there was a sort of political and labor leaning for sure of conversations that would take place considering my grandfather uh, ran in a primary for Senate in the state of California. He was very active in politics, you know, in the sort of early 60s and 70s uh, in California. 
And so, you know, we talked about these things quite a bit. Um, Coming to Chicago, I met my partner, now wife of 10 plus years, whose dad uh, was a master electrician at IBEW Local 134, very strong advocate of his union and of labor. And there was, I would say, years of conversations uh, sort of that got me a little bit more connected, but ultimately I've always cared about the, you know, these issues, uh, specifically issues around inequality and income inequality. And I think after the 2016 election, when I was moving on from belly and thinking about what I was going to do with my future, I started having a lot of conversations before joining Techstars about what I was going to do and what I was going to work on. And, and in truth, in Chicago, there's, you know, a number of folks in tech in Chicago that are closely connected with sort of tech and politics. And so I started having a number of conversations with the folks talking about what I should work on, what campaigns or what issues. And, you know, really it came down to thinking more about issues that I cared about rather than campaigns. I didn't plan to spend a career in politics. I don't, you know, have much of an interest in it. And I started focusing on issues around income inequality. And I knew that, you know, there wasn't something I was ready to start or work on, but I just started reading and studying. And so after the 2016 election, you know, I started thinking about income inequality as a problem to work on, whether that was going to be joining something or working on a you know policy or legislation. And not knowing, I decided to start going to some strikes and walkouts, talking to workers. I started volunteering with some union friends, asking them what problems they have or things about their tech stack. I tried to advise or help some on doing integrations of things like we're bringing in a new Salesforce environment or we're doing some data merging. And so part of the exploration in 2016, early 2017, was just talking, reading, taking courses. And, you know, really it was a lot of those conversations within labor, uh, sort of understanding and trying to identify, like, how can I support you? How can I most be helpful with my background? And finding that, yeah, there was a, a big problem and there was just an incredible lack of tech stack built specifically for labor. They didn't have tools that were built specifically for them, didn't have tools or really a market of things that were solving a lot of their core problems. And so it was really, you know, early in some of those conversations where I started to see and identify that I think one of the biggest problems within labor as a market was that they were ignored by technology and were being forced to sort of use things that were spun out of political campaigns or political tech, maybe someone would finish a campaign uh, and the nature of campaigns meant they would take a job in labor for some period of time and try and bring in some app that they had used for relational organizing, whatever it is, and try and repurpose that for the union. And it really wasn't built for them. I started to really deeply think about that problem. And I knew I wasn't ready yet, like I said, to, to sort of leave and start something. So I took Techstars as a job and spent multiple years meeting with unions, meeting with workers, talking to organizers, taking online courses, reading books, and just continued as, as, you know, I'm sure someone with an entrepreneurial background, we start to think about, you know, new ideas or things that we can work on. And it's just something that stuck. I couldn't ever break or stop thinking about what else could I can learn, who else I can serve, you know, how to think more about the problems within the space. And so eventually it just became so clear to me that this is what I was going to spend the rest of my life working on. And so that's when I took the jump to do it. So what's the founding story then for Get Frank? Why is it called that? 
what what's what's the distinction between get frank and frank and well yeah yeah, what, uh, yeah. frank uh frank.com is a is an expensive is an expensive url so get frank is a uh is the domain so it's getfrank.com we go by frank uh, the, the product and company is called frank maybe someday it will just be frank.com we'll see tbd i uh what is the idea i think the founding story uh, anytime someone talks about founding stories i feel like you know, everyone wants this, you know, back to the future flux capacitor moment where you like, you know, slip on and hit your head on a toilet and all of a sudden you've got this inspiration. But I think most startup founding stories are oftentimes refined or made up after the fact uh, to sound like a more interesting story. Mine was probably much more a process of iteration than inspiration. It was thinking about a problem, thinking about things like income inequality and, and where does income inequality derived from, uh, or what are the best ways in which we can impact it? For me, that meant labor, focusing on how to improve people's lives at work. Frank, the name, is, I think, in some way, alludes to the type of conversations you very likely need to have in an organizing or in taking collective action, talking to your boss about improving conditions at work. It is a type of communication that is honest, but direct uh, and firm. And so there's a nod to a communication style that we think may be required. But Frank is also um, subtly, it's a nod to my father-in-law, who, like I said, IBW Local 134, a master electrician, and his name. And he he died. Uh, He passed away at work um, as an electrician. And and so he he really represented, I think, the ideal to me of a union guy. in the most traditional, a sort of old old school sense, along with you know, growing up, uh, seeing, talking to my mom about being a teacher. But it was a, a sort of note to him and, and my wife, uh, who very much takes after him. She goes by Frank at work. And so, you know, for me, Frank uh, is a nod, a uh, personal touch, along with the communication style. That's a lot of Frank there, and it makes sense. How did you go about starting up a company who did you find to work along with you and how did you find funding if you did how'd you get going yeah we uh, i self-funded in the beginning um you know i had uh the ability to uh, to self-fund for the first six months eight months or so of trying to get started i first quit uh, i went full-time uh, decided to just you know be all in went through the process of just doing company formation and doing all the things necessary, acquiring domains, all things that are significantly easier to do than they did last time I had to start. I had the good fortune of working with a number of startups through Techstars and I've done it before. So all those were, you know, uh, let's say relatively easy. And then it was building team. So, you know, I started reaching out to so many folks in my network, people that I've been talking to over the past couple of years, trying to learn from and trying to, you know, recruit and finding people that cared about the issue, you know, relatively easy, finding people that cared about the issue and were interested in doing a startup or having the specific, uh, you know, sort of background skills, things I needed to complement. And so I started recruiting. I brought on um, first part-time, you know, a couple of, you know, a couple of co-founders that were not leaving their jobs full-time. And then uh, beginning of 2020 is when we really started to grow the team. So added um, a couple of co-founders. My co-founders today, Mary Urbina McCarthy, Emily Drevitz, started 
in February and March of 2020 in our new office that I secured on January 1st, 2020, and then immediately closed for the next two years permanently. And so Mary and Emily, I met through different connections. Mary has a background in politics uh, with also a family history in labor. She had worked on a number of local political campaigns and had you know a number of mutual connections through those political campaigns. Uh, and she came on and has been running ops for us. So she does you know all of everything with the business and works with all of our partners. And Emily, as a co-founder, was an introduction. She um, is an engineer who was really active in a group. In, it's called Shy Hack Night, which is a a group that gets together with frequency to build tools to sort of improve the city, things in the city of Chicago. And she was an active member there. We got connected uh, and she was deeply passionate about, you know, building things again. So for, when you first said shy hack night, I thought we were talking about uh, introverted programmers, but it's clearly Chicago. Chicago. Shy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> shy. Yeah. 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 Sh- Chicago hack night. It's called shy hack night. I, she's corrected me multiple times for calling it Chicago hack night, trying to be more clear, but yes, it's a it's sort of hack, a hack night for civic tech and, you know, issues yep. in the city of Chicago. Yep. So there's actually a enormous number of different things that labor unions need as far as technology. The, the, the potential stack is gigantic. What did you decide you were going to start with? Yeah, I, I absolutely think that's true. And I have a fundamental belief that no one should be trying to solve all of those problems and that tech is usually best when focused on narrow problems and narrow solutions and then interoperable different parts of the stack. And so for us, we focus on organizing. Uh, we focus on providing software to organizers. Initially, we had built the product specifically for workers. So we didn't initially start by selling it or providing it directly to union organizers. It was directly for workers. But for us, the mission has really been about trying to provide tools to give more workers a voice in their workplace and have the ability to be able to effectively organize and make collective demands. And so for us, organizing the ability really for our union partners to better connect with interested workers, to be able to take and onboard them, be able to welcome and start the process of organizing. And then ultimately, our goal is to help our union partners, worker centers, labor advocacy orgs, be able to have a higher conversion rate of interested workers into dues paying members. It sounds to me like if it's something that workers can use to organize, it could take place in non-union shops just as well. It could take it could be a way that workers who work for a company that doesn't have a union get together and do collective action. Is are you mainly just focused on unionized places or does it work outside of that? So when we started the company and I was starting in 2019 and bringing on co-founders through 2020, you know, in the, the earliest versions of the product, it was, you know, what we would describe as a consumer product, the ability for workers to sign up directly, uh, to be able to use the tool for mapping their workplace, for inviting coworkers to privately chat about workplace issues and to create demand letters, create petitions, uh, attach actions to those, and to, in a way, self-manage uh, a collective bargaining process. Within the NLRA and within the laws that sort of protect worker organizing, there's a number of uh, uh, 
ways in which workers can through you know what you consider protected activity but you know that's debatable uh, be able to organize self-organize create demands and do so in a way that is as protected as if they were fully unionized however uh, obviously uh, the unionization process provides additional benefits of the requirement uh, for the company to negotiate in good faith towards a contract and others but in you know in let's say 2018 2019 there was a lot of sort of worker collective action taking place solidarity unionism or you know just workers organizing walkouts and making demands and you know part of uh, in the sort of early discovery for me of talking to unions and talking to organizers was i think this identification of this really big problem that there's a lot more workers that are interested in unionizing. They don't necessarily know how to get started, uh, know where to go or what that looks like or how to do it, what their protections are, how long it will take. There's just still a huge education gap. But also, there is a vast majority of workers that do actually take steps to unionize and don't have an opportunity at all to do so, whether that's because of their job status growing sort of in the gig economy, whether that's because they're in the wrong geography, their company's too small, it's not a certain target or hotshot that a union is targeting. And so the vast majority of calls from workers to unions go unreturned. We think that's a big problem. And so I think ultimately, long term, there's a vision for workers that are interested in unionizing or improving their workplace to be able to find a place where they can start uh, get connected to an organizer, be affiliated with the union, but start to take the process of mapping their workplace and doing issue identification and others. But for us in building that through those early stages, building what you consider a consumer product for workers to self-organize and make demands, there are also as a startup, a number of challenges, the ability to just get the word out with having little capital, the ability for you to build all of the parts of that stack for the workers to be able to not only find, discover, invite, chat, collaborate, make demands, and come back. The uh, ability to support them through that process, provide legal aid or counsel, and technically, uh, as soon as an organization starts to operate as a representative on behalf of workers, providing counsel or others, that can be designated as operating as a union. And so there were a number of challenges, I think, in just sort of building the product specifically for workers, but we had so much interest uh, we had workers coming to us saying, you know, we, we need this, but we also had organizers that were signing up and using this sort of free consumer version to try to run their organizing. And so, you know, we kept talking to organizers. They were really our primary product testers and influencers in sort of how to build aspects of the product, uh, trying to take all of, you know, their learnings and best practices. And they kept saying, we need something like this. And so, for us, the it was really a pivot. It was a pivot, not in the mission or not in really the core aspects of the worker product, but we made a pivot to say, we're going to pause any of the, stop the consumer uh, direct-to-worker product, and we'll provide the software to union organizers. It's just a huge need in a uh, really, I think, underserved market. And so we added a bunch of organizer admin tools, admin functionality, customizations, and began selling it to unions. And there's clearly a need and a market for us to do it. And, you know, we fundamentally believe in the revitalization of the labor movement and of the existing union movement, but do also believe that it needs to innovate and needs to have significantly more tools 
and significantly more tech, I think, in all different parts of the stack. But our focus is on organizing and providing our software to unions, worker centers, labor advocacy orgs. So who were early clients for you? Yeah, we, we worked on the consumer product. We're early. So, you know, I just we've been working for a few years. I'd say we're early. We made the decision to what we call pivot to the organizer model in Talked about it, let's say, late 2021. After a couple of months of building, we had some folks that had been sort of developing relationships with and had showed interest in using. And so we opened up really the beginning of 2022, the beginning of this year, we opened up what you consider like a beta, a private beta. And so uh, we now, a couple months later, have uh, multiple partners that are using, actively using on let's say 15, 20 campaigns that are actively taking place on, you know, on the platform with our organizers, but it's still very small. So we're, so these like union locals, the big international union hasn't bought it. We're talking to almost every international, but that's not our goal right now. We we don't, you know, we're not trying to, uh, you know, to sell scale to, you know, large internationals yet. So we're working with some locals, ones that we can name, uh, let's see, with the operating engineers, IUOE, with a worker center, Rock United which organizes restaurant workers. And so those are a couple of the ones that are, you know, I think named partners that are in our pilot uh, with, along with a number of other groups, but those are ones that are actively organizing within the app and they're doing all of the sort of customizations. They're inviting their workers. They are chatting with them, uh, doing everything with digital auth cards entirely within the app. And so right now in this beta period, I think we're in a stage where, we're a three-person team. We've got these new partners on board. They're giving us great feedback. Uh, and we're really kind of in a, more of a product iteration cycle. Get feedback from them, continue to iterate. And the, the truth is almost every local, not even international, uh, but almost every local has differences in how they organize and what they want out of the product. The organizing is different across the board. And so you know, we're, we're gathering feedback from some trade union partners, Locals, some that do top-down organizing, some bottom-up, some that are doing salting, stripping, others, and continue to iterate, but getting closer to opening up wider. When you build a company, I guess the sense of the size of the market develops over time. Sometimes you think it's big and it's not. Sometimes you think it's tiny and turns out to be bigger. There are adjacent things you can do, et cetera. Is there enough space for you? to build an enterprise of the size that you want to build. How do you think about the market that you've entered? Well, you know, I think first, uh, you know, the size that we want to build, um, you know, is, is a sort of first step. Uh, I think, um, you know, we're building something as a mission-based B Corp, uh, public benefit corporation. Our aspiration is to, you know, help workers have a stronger voice in their workplace. And we fundamentally believe that there is, what I would say a very large problem area and problem surface that we can work to address. I think in thinking about building a startup, there's a number of folks in venture capital or that evaluate on certain criteria, like, you know, we, like, what is the size of this market? Tell me X times Y to give me your TAM and your sort of bottom. But for me, I, I think startups are best when they identify a problem. I, you know, personally, climate and income inequality are two of, if not the two largest issues facing society today. And so, you know, working on addressing income inequality uh, and the fundamental sort of source of that being from work 
and you know, th- there's the size of the sort of U.S. labor market, but there's also just a fundamental conversation about you know over the last fifty years the sort of labor share of income versus capital share, specifically these sort of economic metrics that have shifted that uh, the dollars that are going to executives and shareholders versus workers and wages. That's over a trillion dollars a year for 40 straight years. And so the size of market of starting to work to correct, rebalance those is large. But there is a conversation, I think, and one that people question me a lot about is like, as a comparative to political or campaign technology or nonprofits, they ask, is labor a big enough market. A big problem is that some people have decided the answer is no, and that contributes to there continuing to be an incredible lack of services in tech built specifically for labor. Why there's slight product spinouts or slight product pivots or product line extensions that get sold to labor as a new feature, but just, just aren't built for them. And we can talk about why I believe that's wrong and why I believe the market is large. But, you know, one of the things that we deeply care about is not just Frank working or being useful to our union partners, but being a contributor to there being a labor tech as a space, a podcast like this focused specifically on tools for labor, a a higher ground labs specifically for labor technology. Those things matter deeply to me. It sounds like you ought to start a podcast, honestly. My understanding is uh, not having been close to the labor market for a while, but there in my day, there were member management systems that labor unions used. There were compliance things. There were applications for dealing with the press. There were companies that originated like Action Network out of labor space. Um, It wasn't a total desert. Um, How do you see the labor tech world right now, now that you've come into it a little bit? There are some, uh, you know, tools that focus on member management. A lot of them would be considered things like CRM, and the CRM space is fairly robust in things that are non-labor. Uh, and a lot of unions are using sort of off-the-shelf corporate or business tools and trying to repurpose them for their own internal uses. I think that there are some great pieces of technology that labor can probably use, but labor and a union it operates different than a corporation. They consider organizing to be the growth function, a way to add new members, but it's not called sales and marketing like it is in corporations and it's run in a different way. And so you know, taking these off the shelf tools that are generous, general purpose or built specifically for enterprise, you know, I think can be problematic. Um, there are some tools, like you said, built, built for labor, speaking to you like MPG van plus, you know, ac- every action has tools that are sold to labor. Action Network, which also has Action Builder, is tools built in collaboration with labor. But, you know, right now, those are the two largest, uh, you know, in terms of like pieces of tech that unions buy from a software perspective. I think being able to name the two largest and neither of them necessarily having a primary focus, you know, on labor as a sort of product or extension or a spinoff or really more interested in the growth path for nonprofits I think there needs to be a lot more. You're not talking about really any of those tools that have been started uh, or built within the last 10 years, maybe 15. For me, the the ecosystem of, let's say, political tech, like you can look at the sort of market map or the number of political campaign technologies that have been built in the last three years. It's over, you know, it's 200. That's a totally new development. And 
it's know, a new development. Yeah. yeah. yeah Probably a welcomed like one, that. maybe yeah. too many and not all will work. Uh, but that's part of creating this ecosystem. And right now, if you talk to me about, or we talk about the number of tools built specifically for labor in the last five years, you're going to struggle to name two or three. Well, maybe you're in a position to spin out five or six or seven or eight of them yourself. You know, that that's a good position to be in probably. We care about that happening, but I do believe it's best when there's an ecosystem of founders that believe there is an, a market opportunity, ability to survive and be funded to do so. And I genuinely believe that labor and workers will be better served as more people think about the opportunity of building specifically for labor. So, so we hope that it's an ecosystem and we don't aspire to be the capture all market share behemoth. That's, that's not our aspiration. Our aspiration is to serve as a dedicated small team focusing on our craft and helping our partners provide our organizers with better tools to more effectively, more efficiently, you know, more accessibly focus on organizing uh, and to provide tools because our product has a way for the workers to engage directly in the product with organizers uh, to enable more worker-led campaigns, to enable workers to have a stronger voice in their organizing, uh, to advance and become more worker leaders and to have a more accessible product to be able to really expand the opportunity to organize. There's just too many calls that go unreturned. There's too many geographies that aren't touched, small companies that should have an opportunity that don't. Um, and we want to help work on that. When I hear a founder of a company speak in that way about the problem they want to solve and the mission that they're organizing their business around, I always feel more hopeful for the future of that business than I do when I think it's motivated by less connection to the subject matter, by less connection to the space. A lot of times what happens in the market over time will dictate a little bit about what the company becomes. It's a feedback mechanism as much as anything else. But what's your biggest challenge right now in solving the problems that you're trying to solve? You know, I think we go into... Uh, conversations about providing organizing tools. And, and, you know, like I said, every local, uh, every international worker center, there's just, everyone is doing things slightly different. And for the most part, uh, either trying to build something, trying to repurpose some existing technology or trying to avoid using technology because, you know, either the workers don't feel interested or they think there's some sort of tech literacy gap or they've been burned by trying something in the past, pilot, test, you know, rolling something out and it wasn't useful or helpful. And so for us, the challenge right now is we have, I, I think, uh, incredible amount of interest. There's not really calls from locals or internationals that go unreturned. There's incredible interest in people that are building new tools specifically for labor. However, Labor has historically been known to not necessarily be as urgent in their buying behavior or their roll-up behavior as campaigns. I see you smiling. The sort of urgency created around an election date, you know, I think can really press. Lots of other spaces, government or uh, nonprofits, there's not a huge urgency usually. It's a long sales cycle. Yeah. Who is, you know, who is the buyer of new organizing software? You know, who, who deploys oftentimes organizing departments as fundamentally as a problem is are understaffed uh, and are inundated with, you know, leads that they're trying to manage. And so 
have the ability to break out and provide something new. And so for us, we're seeing incredible demand, but we're a small team. We're trying to remain a small team. Uh, and I, I think, like you mentioned, the ability for us to think about um, hiring, adding engineering, uh, the ability to develop with labor and work with labor to hopefully become better buyers of technology and better better at utilizing it and sort of advancing, uh, let's say, a more systemic approach to thinking about innovation. And so those are some of the things that we're thinking through. And, and ultimately right now, a lot of spaces in tech, a lot of tech bros, I think, approach different problems with a move fast, break things. We're going to come in and disrupt. And that's just not us. We, we recognize that the work that we're doing is incredibly serious. And by asking a worker to sign up, you're putting oftentimes their livelihood. Uh, they're very likely to face union busting. They're very likely to face retaliation, almost certain. And so we're trying to go slow. Uh, we're trying to be methodical. We're trying to build things with high levels of security and intent. And every conversation we have with organizers, like I said, there's just uh, so many different methodologies and problems to solve. There's problems to solve because there's just not a lot of people building or serving this market. And so trying to remain focused on the things that we do, trying to build from a product perspective with a lot of organizer feedback, but do so in a way that's applicable to as many future organizers or future campaigns. And then working on you know, doing those product iterations with a small team and starting to scale. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? The listeners of this podcast, I know, uh, you know, a number of the guests in the past have been focused on political tech and have focused on you know, campaigns, democratic politics, progressive politics. And, you know, I, I would just say that there is a space to put your your time, energy, effort uh, and your career path, your work into labor uh, and to building worker power and to providing solutions built specifically for worker power, for collective bargaining, for grievance tracking and for member management and not to be a spinoff. And so ultimately, uh, uh, you know, my hope is that we can create an ecosystem of people focused on building tools for labor. Uh, and I hope some some folks that listen to this uh, start to consider those options. Well, it's a little bit unusual for an entrepreneur in a space to ask for competition, but I respect that a lot. There is room to help the labor movement grow and and do what it does better. And I think it makes a lot of sense that if that's what you care about, that you would speak about it in those terms. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the time. That is Logan LaHive. He is at getfrank.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.